Let me pray for us as we get our time started and then we'll turn to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us another morning. Thank you for waking us up and uh, bringing us here. Lord, we thank you for all the men that you've gathered today and we pray that by your grace, you might open our eyes to see Jesus in his word. Lord, help us to be convinced again that the fullness is in Christ. Lord, we're so tempted to, to let go of Christ and chase after something else. And so this morning, would you show us again his supremacy and his sufficiency and what it looks like to grow in a way that is pleasing to you. So bless our time this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into our text this morning, which you have on your handout, I just want to spend a couple minutes highlighting a few themes that we've seen really over the whole course of our study. And I think that's helpful to remember those themes and then see how they're weaving into our passage today. So the first theme I want to remind you of is how Paul emphasizes the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. If we just go back to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, I want you to hear this again. It would be great for us to hear it every day, so here it is today. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so you can hear in those amazing verses, Paul is teaching about the supremacy and preeminence of Christ. The personal question for us would be, do we see, do we embrace the supremacy and preeminence of Christ? Paul is teaching that Christ is sufficient as Lord and Savior for humanity. So the personal question would be, have I trusted Christ to be sufficient as my Lord and Savior? As we, as we move towards our passage today, it's good to keep that theme in, the, in mind, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Paul gives us this high Christology in Colossians 1 because there were people in the community that were coming against that notion. They were teaching something a little bit different. They were trying to lure the Colossians away from the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. The other theme I wanna highlight is, is Paul's passion. And because Paul's passionate about it, I think we could say God really cares about it. His passion for Christians to go on to maturity, to grow up in the fullness of Christ. God wants all of his children to grow up in the fullness of Christ. Just one verse reflects this. You could see it other places as well, but at the end of Colossians 1, verse 28, Paul says, him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So as we go into our passage today, we need to remember that theme too, the priority of growing up in the fullness of Christ. Paul's been hitting this from different angles uh, that we've seen through the weeks because there are people trying to convince the Colossians there's another way to grow. There's another way to do this that's actually better than holding on to Christ. Maybe we start with Jesus, but if we really wanna go on to maturity or perfection, we need to be all about this. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna read Colossians 2 
I'm gonna go back to verse six where we started a few weeks ago and go to the end of the chapter. So it'll be a minute before I get to the verse 16 on the handout, but I want you to hear again where we've been because it's all connected. So this is Colossians 2 starting in verse six. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you're also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now our passage for today. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now that we've seen all of chapter one and two, we can begin to put a picture together of this false teaching that the Colossians were encountering. And whether this was some visitor passing through town or whether these were people who started in the community and then kind of drifted away from Jesus, we're not sure, but we can begin to paint a picture of this person or group of people who were trying to lead the Colossians astray. And, and this is just sort of piecing together what Paul says and what he hints at. And so let me give you just a little bit of a profile. These people, they didn't outright reject Jesus. Because if they did that, I imagine they probably wouldn't get much of a hearing. And it's, it's from that perspective, it's good to remember that false teaching works best when it's close to the real thing. You know, when it's almost right. Let's start with Jesus and then let's twist something. So they taught that the church was lacking something in the spiritual life. There was, there was something substantial that wasn't part of the teaching that the Colossians were enjoying. And so these teachers claimed to have a better way to find fullness or the life that, that's really life. So they made the Colossians feel judged. We heard that in our passage today, or disqualified. They were trying to fill out the Colossians' inadequate understanding of the faith. So practically, they denied that the fullness is actually found in Christ. 
They tried to disqualify Christians who didn't share their views. They had a lot of enthusiasm and passion. They rooted their authority, Paul says, in, in these personal visions that they had. And they were puffed up with pride. You might literally say, full of hot air. <laughs> so it's not the best profile, but it's helpful to get a sense of kind of who they are and where they were coming from. And that'll make more sense as we dive into our argument today. But I wanna remind you of a couple warnings that we've already heard before today and then we'll build upon that. So in chapter two, verse four, Paul says, don't let anyone delude you with plausible arguments. And what I want you to see is his answer to why is that? In verse three, he says, because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So don't let people, even if it's a plausible argument, don't forget that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in what we just read, Chapter two, verse eight, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Why not? Because in Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily and you've been filled in him. So what I want you to see in these warnings, when Paul is warning us about false teaching, his answer or his reasoning is always deeply rooted in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. So a growth that is from God is not about starting with Christ and then moving on to something else or something better. A growth that is from God starts in Christ and continues in Christ for a lifetime. So with that foundation, I wanna dive into the warnings that are in our passage today. So the first one you see in verse 16, look at verse 16, the warning is, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And verse 17, Paul gives the reasoning, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this may be a little bit strange to peer into, but I think we can get to the bottom of it. On the one hand, we've got questions of food or drink. On the other hand, we've got sort of sacred times and seasons. So if we think about questions of food and drink in verse 16, remember the Old Testament had certain laws or regulations about what God's people should eat or not eat. We can assume that these teachers maybe started with that but went beyond it. And so there are certain things that they would say, this could not be allowed, this must be avoided. And so these things would be forbidden. So you might say from this angle, growth or maturity is all about avoidance. You know, it's about avoiding the things you need to avoid. When we talk about a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, a festival would probably be more of an annual thing. A new moon, you think about the cycle of the moon, be more of a monthly thing. Sabbath obviously being a weekly thing. So you can see weekly, monthly, annual celebrations that we cannot do without. These things must be observed. These things would be required. And so growth or maturity is all about observance, observing the right things. Now we need some nuance here before we go kind of into more detail. And it's helpful sometimes to say, what is Paul not saying? <laughs> I don't think he's saying there's no place uh, for avoiding certain things in the Christian life. If you read Paul's letters, it's clear we should avoid sin. We should flee from it. We should put it to death. So we're not wrong to expect that Christians avoid certain things. He's not saying that. Avoidance is, is part of a Christian life. Paul's not saying that there's no place for observing certain things in the Christian life. Again, in Paul's letters, of course, there are rhythms uh, to the Christian life. It's good for us to gather together this morning. It's great for us to gather together on Sunday morning, on the Lord's day. More broadly speaking, obedience is a good, not a bad word. We follow God's teaching with his help. 
So Paul's not saying that we should all have the same views on non-essential matters. It's interesting to go read Romans 14 and 15 and see that Paul was very understanding with brothers and sisters who had different views about eating certain foods. It feels different from this passage because he instructs people, don't pass judgment on the weaker brother or sister. (laughs) Don't cause someone to stumble if they struggle with the idea of eating that food. So Paul is not dismissing avoiding or observing out of hand. He's dismissing making these things the center or the defining mark of our spiritual life. That's what's going on with these teachers. It's like they're saying, I know you started with Christ and Christ is good, but if you really want the fullness, if you really wanna grow, it's all about avoiding these things and observing these things. You can't eat this, you can't drink that. And you've gotta observe our calendar. (laughs) That's how it works and if you don't do that, you're not a real Christian and we're gonna judge you, we're gonna disqualify you. May sound worlds away, but when I was in high school at Highland Park in the 90s, Dallas, as you probably know, was more culturally Christian than it is now and in that culture there was a sense that being a Christian for some people, simply was about avoiding certain things and observing certain things. So in my little subculture, there were plenty of high school students who believed if I just don't drink alcohol, or if I don't get too drunk, or if I just don't have sex, if I don't go too far sexually, and if I go to church, (laughs) then I'm a Christian. I'm a good Christian. And you know the problem with that approach is really obvious because avoiding alcohol and sex going to church, those things could have nothing to do with Jesus at all. But there's an allure to an emphasis on avoidance and observance. If you think about that, we can make things more black and white. You know, our sinful hearts are always looking for a way around a relationship with God. You know, can, can we just come up with a formula or a set of rules? Can, can, can it just be about doing this or not doing that? And this approach also appeals to our pride. Because if we say, well, this is how it works, you just gotta avoid this, you just gotta observe that, then now we can kind of be the judge and say, we're the real Christians. (laughs) We can look down on, on you weak people who can't do it right. And so we can see the allure sort of moving on from Christ and saying, yeah, that's a good start. But it's really now about avoiding these things and doing these things. So how does Paul respond to this? If you look at verse 17, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So yes, there were dietary laws in the Old Testament. God gave his people these rules for a purpose, for a time. We don't have time to run all that down this morning, but it's worth noting in Mark 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark writes in parentheses, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. So the cleanliness laws, the dietary codes, these were a shadow of things to come. That's what Paul's saying. But things change when Christ, who is the substance, comes. So if eating or drinking a certain way was about being clean or different or holy as the people of God in the Old Testament, when Jesus comes to to truly cleanse us from our sin and make us clean, the shadow gives way to the light and the substance of Christ. And in addition, when we're thinking about things in creation, Paul has already identified Jesus as the creator of all things in chapter one. So to take something like food and say, this is bad, 
you know, is to look at the creator and say, you made something bad. In 1 Timothy 4, 4, Paul writes, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So if you think this is only an issue 2000 years ago, think again. How many people have made life all about a certain diet? It's all about avoiding these foods. You know, this is the enemy. Carbohydrates are the enemy or meat is the enemy or whatever it is. It's all about Atkins or Whole30 or Paleo. This diet will change your life or wine will change your life or not drinking any alcohol will change your life. And I'm just thinking I had three donut holes this morning. That's all I needed. (laughs) That changed my life. (laughs) Maybe not for the better. But if you go beyond food, it's easy to make life about avoiding certain things. It's easy to define ourselves by what we don't do. It's easy for our kids to define ourselves by what they don't do. And what's interesting is it's not long before avoiding certain things turns into avoiding certain people. We avoid those who aren't like us or those people who don't like us and we judge them. Think about it, where are you tempted to make life all about avoiding, to find your identity in what you don't do? And if you can locate that, then ask yourself, was Jesus's life on earth all about avoiding certain things and people? (laughs) You say, of course not. And we know that Jesus wasn't sinfully engaged in stuff, but he was actually accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. His life wasn't defined by avoidance and neither should ours be. So that's the avoidance side of things. I wanna talk for a minute about the observance side of things. When Paul talks about a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, what is he talking about? I think there's a connection here between days and seasons and celebrations and what Paul calls on several occasions the elemental spirits of the world. That's in verse eight, verse 20, that phrase, the elemental spirits of the world. One Bible commentator writes, the sacred days must be kept for the sake of the elements of the universe who direct the course of the stars and thus prescribe minutely the order of the calendar. So earth-based religion, superstition, all that stuff. These teachers surely knew about the times and seasons and the feasts of the Old Testament. These were rhythms for the people of God that recognized the Lord's authority over people and over the world. But there's this temptation, and I'm sure the teachers ran with it, this temptation to go beyond what was in scripture and then mix scripture with tradition and pagan content. So it's syncretism. It's blending religions until it's no longer this or that. It's this new concoction. I was reminded this week that the influence of the elemental spirits, if you will, of paganism is with us every day because every day of the week derives its name from a pagan god. Did you know this? Sunday is a day sacred to the sun, Monday to the moon, the lunar calendar in uh, lunes in Spanish is Monday. Uh, Tuesday to Tiv or Mars, God of war. Tuesday in Spanish is Martes. Uh, Wednesday to Woden, Thursday to Thor, Friday to Frigg or Venus. Again, in Spanish, Friday is Viernes. Uh, Saturday to Saturn. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we don't realize the water that we're swimming in. In any case, that's not really the point, but these false teachers had constructed a new religious calendar that blended the Old Testament models with what you could say the best of paganism. 
We can assume that now this keeping this regular rhythm of weekly, monthly, annual celebrations, worship, whatever you wanna call it, would become mandatory. So if you're gonna be serious about the Christian life, you gotta keep our calendar. And again, Paul says, don't let people judge you for not observing that. These are the shadows, Christ is the substance. What's foreshadowed in the Old Testament feasts and festivals and celebrations is fulfilled in Christ. So the treasures of spiritual life and fullness are to be found in him, nowhere else. It's in Christ. So to grow with a growth that's from God, we don't need a new calendar. We need Christ. Before moving on, I just wanna ask, why are we tempted to return to shadows? Think about it. It's, in some ways, it's easier to have the shadows than the substance. And if you were an Israelite, in some ways, it's easier to have the big, massive temple and just to be able to walk into it and enjoy this space than to have to deal with Jesus saying, I'm the temple. Or to hear Paul say, no, we're the temple. And I still think there's a thing where we can make it all about the church building instead of no, like there's something new going on. Jesus says, we're the temple. Or, you know, it's easier to just say, that's the priest or that's the pastor. And he's the one that, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the spiritual professional. Instead of, no, Jesus is the great high priest. And he's actually saying that we're a kingdom of priests now. There's a priesthood of all believers. It's easier to have a checklist of things to avoid and observe instead of a relationship. So it's easier to follow those who are making the rules instead of walking with God who wants a relationship that's alive. So in a way, it makes sense. We're drawn to the shadows and, and sometimes it's almost like the light and the substance are too bright for us. Just give me the shadows. <laughs> but if you think about it, if we make our spiritual life all about what we avoid and observe, we're effectively denying that the fullness and the substance belongs to Christ. That's the core of what these teachers are doing wrong. They're basically saying Jesus is not enough. What he did is not enough. Now you have to do these things and not do these things to grow. So they're denying the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. They're acting like Christ didn't live, die, and rise again, or that didn't really matter. They're abandoning the gospel of grace and running back to a religion of rules. And that's why Paul keeps saying one way or another, in Christ, the fullness of God has come. Fullness in Christ. So being a Christian means seeing Christ and resting in Christ and walking in Christ and not letting anyone take us back to the shadows. Our identity is not in what we avoid or what we observe. Our identity is secure in Christ. So Paul continues in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul's continuing his argument. In verse 16, he said, let no one pass judgment on you in these matters. Now he says, let no one disqualify you. One commentator says, this is the language of the umpire's decision. You know, a good, you're out. It's disqualifying. It makes sense. If the false teachers are laying down this gauntlet of avoidance and observance, then if you're not able to do that, then we're gonna disqualify you. You're out, you're out of the community. 
So they insist on ascetic practices, these things we do to deny ourselves and be strict with our bodies and try to control our desires. They insist on worship of angels, whatever that means, whether that means actually worshiping angels or somehow imitating angels in the way that they worship, that's how we need to worship. They claim to have great visions that are sort of the foundation for their authority but they're puffed up with pride, Paul says. That's at the heart of their problem, is they're puffed up with pride, with themselves. A side note would be, <laughs> beware of people who focus more on their visions than the word of God. You remember that Paul was called up to the third heaven. He had an incredible vision. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 12, but it's interesting is Paul doesn't really share what he saw. He doesn't go on and on about it. And the punchline of that passage is actually God saying to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And after that incredible vision, Paul's resolve is, I'm gonna boast, not in the visions, but in his weaknesses and in the glory of Christ. And I think Satan loves it when we try to disqualify one another from the fellowship for whatever reason. I'm not talking about the core beliefs of the gospel the things that we all need to believe to be Christians. I'm talking about the convictions and commitments that aren't at the core. So think about how many denominations, historically, but even in the last five, 10 years, how many denominations or movements or people in churches have been so ready to disqualify brothers and sisters from the fellowship because the way they follow Jesus looks a little different or because they don't share the same preferences about music or worship styles or whatever else or they don't emphasize a certain aspect of doctrine, or, or they don't share the same economic or political convictions. And Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one like the Father and Son are one. It's wild prayer to think that that's what Jesus's hope is for us. Now, if that unity is precious to God and believe that it is, then it's important to Satan too strategically important for him to fight against the oneness and unity of the church. And one way Satan tried to divide the Colossians, one way he tries to divide us is to move us to a place where we're puffed up with pride. And so we no longer love our brothers and sisters and we're ready to disqualify them and kick them out over non-essential matters. Now, whether that means kicking them out of the church or just sort of spurning them so that we don't have that oneness. These false teachers were ready to kick people out for not playing by their rules. Think about it, if you've read the gospels, do you ever get the sense that Jesus was like that? That some sinner, some broken person comes up to him and he's about to kick them out because they won't play by his rules. Now he was like that with one group of people. Whenever Jesus was harsh, it was with the religious leaders. And they were the proud, puffed up ones who had missed the point. And they were leading people astray because they were looking in the eyes of the word of God. They were looking in the eyes of the Messiah and they couldn't see it. And from the moment he appeared on the scene, they were plotting, how do we get rid of this guy? How do we kick this guy out? <laughs> see, in verse 19, Paul talks about these, these people, they were not holding fast to the head. This is just another reminder from Paul that our growth in Christ is centered in Christ. He is the head, we are his body. What an astounding image of the body of Christ that we would be united with him and be his body. And this image has so much to say to us about how we grow. Think about it, we grow by holding fast, staying attached, you might say, to our head. We don't wanna be a body without Jesus as a head. <laughs> 
we wanna grow with a growth that's from God, we will always need Christ as the head. We hold on to him in the confidence that his grip is so much stronger and it's perfect and he will not let us go. But there's more to the image than that. If we want a growth that's from God, we'll always need each other as the body. See, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. So God has arranged his body in such a way that we need one another to grow up in Christ. We're all different parts, different gifts, different functions, but one body. And we can't make it on our own. We can't be the people of God on our own. So as we pursue growth, is that an individual project or a group project? I know a lot of us as guys didn't enjoy group work in school. <laughs> it ended up all on you or whatever. But when God's word talks about our growth, it's always a community project. It's group project. We have a personal relationship with Christ, yes, but it's never meant to be a private relationship. Just me and Jesus, no one else. So we need one another. And it's so great that you're here and I love seeing how you guys are digging in together, but who knows you well? Whom do you know well? Who's walking with you? With whom are you walking? Who's nourishing you? Whom are you nourishing? Where is God knitting your life together with other people that you might be the body of Christ in the head who is Christ? So we're called to hold fast to Christ and to do that together. Let's look at verses 20 through 23 as we close. This is Paul at his best, really. We don't have to look for clues here. Paul is shooting straight as he talks about this man-made religion that the false teachers are promoting in Colossae. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So Paul returns again to the glory of our union with Christ. Our relationship to this world and its religious quest is forever changed because we died with Christ. By faith, we're united with him. And as we said last week, what happened to him somehow happened to us. We died with him. We were raised with him. The world only knows the way of religion. In religion, we work, we do, we perform, hoping that God will accept us one day. But in Christianity, Christ works. <laughs> Christ does, and we put our trust in him and what he's done. It's not, first of all, about what we do. We can't perform, we can't, we can't earn it, we can't pull it off. So we don't live hoping to earn God's acceptance. We live knowing that we have it already in him because of Jesus Christ. So Paul basically says, you died to all that stuff in the world. Why do you still wanna live like that? So just be real. You know, if we're struggling with sexual sin or something else, is this a good strategy? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Don't look at that. Is that a life transforming strategy? Sure, like some of us have more willpower than others, but this is just self-made religion. It's just asceticism. It's just, you know, whipping yourself on the back. Willpower will never conquer your sin or give you a new heart. Now, if I say it loud enough, I might scare you for a minute. I might motivate you to try a little harder. But Paul says it well in verse 23. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They can't get to the root of the problem. They can't get to the sin problem. That's the root of why we're struggling with those things. And so saying things like, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, 
that sort of will worship, self-made religion, it's not gonna help us grow. So these false teachers, they can't free the Colossians from the world and from the flesh. They may promise that. Hey, come, this is fullness. This is life. This is freedom. They promise that, but they can't deliver that. And it's the same with all the other stuff in the world today. These teachers probably claim to be free. The irony is they're still enslaved. Self-denial and willpower can't set us free from the bondage to the world, bondage to the flesh. But Jesus said in John 8, 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And praise the Lord, that's true. It's still true today. Jesus still sets us free. Free from the world and its empty religion. Free from the penalty of our sin. And as he sanctifies us, sets us free from the power of sin. And one day when we're with him, the presence of sin will be gone altogether. So we are free in Christ to walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The world and its religions just run on us. They run on our willpower. Okay, try harder, do better, don't do this, don't see that, don't, don't touch that. It's all about us. But Christianity runs on God's power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead because we're united with him. We're in him, as Paul always says. So within Christianity, in Christ, there actually is a place for self-denial and self-discipline. These things are not inherently bad. They go bad when they become, like everything else, the end and not the means. So when does self-denial or asceticism become a problem? When we're clinging to self-denial instead of holding fast to Christ, verse 19. Or when we're trusting in what self-denial can do for us instead of trusting in what Jesus has already done for us. Or when we're relying on self-denial to tame the flesh instead of relying on Christ. So in Luke 9, 23 and 24, Jesus says these words that many of us have heard. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So you see, Jesus isn't calling us to self-denial for self-denial's sake. He's calling us to deny ourselves so that we can basically turn away from our self-destructive desires and find the fullness of life that he is offering us in him. So he's calling us, as Paul would say, to step out of the shadows and come into the substance. He's calling us to turn away from our self-centered lives and hold fast to him. And he's calling us in the weeks ahead, we'll start to see, to set our minds on things above and to put off certain things, to put certain things to death and to put on certain things, to put on Christ, to get clothed in Christ. But that's chapter three. You'll have to come back for that. <laughs> for now, let's pray together and we'll send you to your groups. Father, thank you for these passages in your word and thank you that your spirit still help us make sense of it Lord, and thank you for what seems like a struggle from thousands of years ago that maybe we can't relate to actually fits our day perfectly. Lord, help us to see where we're just making life about avoiding things or observing things. Help us to see instead that Christ is the substance. Lord, help us not to run back to the shadows. Help us to find our fullness in Christ. Lord, help us to see what it looks like together to hold fast to you. And thank you that you hold us fast. Lord, bless these conversations. Thank you for everyone who's here. Guide us, Lord, help us to see you. 
and be with us today as we seek to live for your glory wherever you've called us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.